I'm so blessed to be here this morning, and I am grateful for the love and care that your church has been giving us, pouring out to us, encouraging with, uh, encouraging us with for some, somewhere near about eight years or so. I'm very grateful, and we send our greetings from our little gathering we have titled Redeeming Grace Church, made up of saints just like you who love and seek the Word of God and seek God's direction and guidance for life. And so thank you for your kindness. I know many of you, I'm looking out at many familiar faces and some new faces, but I want you to know that I consider all of you friends as members and even guests or visitors here today. I'm just grateful for this opportunity to preach the Word of God to us, to our own hearts. Oftentimes when I'm preaching, I recognize that I am I'm hearing the message preached myself and rejoicing and being encouraged beyond even the things I've studied. And I pray that you are greatly, uh, greatly blessed this morning by the Word of God. And so again, love you guys and thank you. Malachi had let me know that during your summer series here, you guys have been going through a, a, um, a quote by John Owen. Uh, is there anyone here that could stand up and say that out loud without looking? Okay, well, let me read it for you. Temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and heart of a person away from obedience to God towards sin in any degree, right? There's no such thing as acceptable sins, right? So friends, I want to ask you a couple of questions as we begin this morning. What has been, going through this series on uh, temptations and tests and trials, what has the main focus of your week been this week? What has your attention? What has occupied that attention and the time in your mind that you've been thinking about? What have you been longing for this week? Where is your heart being pulled to? Where are your eyes looking to this week? These are great challenges and a great inventory we all need to keep in our hearts and minds. Douglas Moo said this, and the reason for this is, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Let me read that again for you. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Friends, this morning, the book of James tells us that our perspective in life, how we look at things in life, situations, and so on, tests and trials, are vital to finding joy amidst these trials, amidst the testings that come into our lives, rather than succumbing to temptation, being lured away and enticed because it sounds so good. For example, many people view trials or temptations as a tunnel. I don't know if you've heard that before. Others see trials as a bridge. The difference is whether we are going through something 
or we are going to something. As Christians, we know we're going to something. We sang about it many times this morning. In other words, do I see my particular trial as a tunnel, something bad that I'm going through, or that I can see coming that I need to go through? Or do I see it as a bridge, as something good going somewhere? With proper perspective, James tells us that the trials God allows in our lives are bridges to something good. I can hear the chorus of amens, right? It's hard to believe that at times. But James tells us that trials allow, God allows, uh, nay causes, right? Sometimes it's clear in our lives are bridges to something good. And because they lead to something good, James tells us, count it all joy when you enter into testings and trial. How many of you right now are thinking, yippee, I'm excited. Boy, I can't wait to hear this. Talking with Malachi, we talked about the title, and that's changed a little bit. When I found out that you guys only give an hour and a half for one to preach, I needed to take three verses away from the text that I was going to preach on. So this morning's title is Understanding Trials and Temptations. Understanding Trials and Temptations. Three key areas I believe our text is going to help us look at, look into, are the purpose of trials. We're going to take a look at what is the purpose of a trial. I hate trials. I hate being tested. I hate taking written tests. What's the purpose of trials? Secondly, we'll see the problem with our unchecked desires, right? When we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired, right? All these other things that we use as excuses to do what we do. The problem with our unchecked desires. And then finally, our third key, which I think is the most pivotal point of the text this morning, is long for the good and the perfect. I asked you, what are you longing for? Longing for the good and perfect. Longing for God. Thinking of the implications of the gospel. Rejoicing in the beauty and goodness and kindness of God. Rather than thinking, yeah, I got a pretty decent life. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, I'm not really, you know, I kind of deserve it. I mean, it is America. We can lose, we can get dulled by the happiness and good things in life. And sometimes God pauses us, brings a trial, brings a test into our lives to snap us out of the warm and fuzzy that we had before and remind us how desperate we are for Him, how good He is, and how much He loves and cares for us. Here's the main idea, the thesis statement, the central point. Temptations are all around us. But when we keep the goodness of God and His promises 
in focus, we will avoid disaster and deepen our faith. Temptations are all around us, but when we keep the goodness of God and His promises in focus, we will avoid disaster and deepen our faith. Anybody want to deepen your faith this morning? Anybody want to avoid disaster? Temptations are everywhere. Now, a little background on the book of James. I'm not going to go too deeply into it, uh, but a little background. According to the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, the James who wrote the letter is none other than Jesus' half-brother, also known as Jesus, uh, James the Just. Okay? James wrote this letter in about 40 to 45, maybe up to 50 A.D., A.D. 40 to 49. To the Jewish Christians, he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed. Because these Jews have become Christians, they are being persecuted. They are being threatened. They are no longer to buy and sell at the local markets because uh, the the Pharisees and so on would be telling them, hey, if we catch you selling to a Christian, you're going to get what they're getting. You're going to be put out of the synagogue. You're going to be pushed away from our city. And so many Jews who became Christians were dispersed all over the place. Now, in God's providence, we see this going on. These Christians who once were associated with the church in Jerusalem, now in God's providence, according to Acts 8, had been scattered when Stephen was martyred. That would be pretty scary to see. They bolted, many of them, experiencing great suffering as they went out, great heartbreak and separation from their homes, the security of family and loved ones who've now disowned them or had a funeral thinking, you're dead to me. Abandoned. James knew these folks that he's writing to. And God knows that you and I need understanding when it comes to trials and temptation. Imagine the persecution and the fear and anxiety they're going through. There's a lot of things that are tempting them. So friends, let's take a look at our first key point here this morning. Found, again, it's the purpose of trials. Excuse me. First, we need to turn our attention where James actually begins his instructions regarding tests and trials. Those words are interchangeable in the Greek, tests and trials. He says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, friends, take a look. Count it all joy, my brothers, Christians, fellow Christians, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Friends, this means that you and I can respond to trials with joy, knowing that God personally designs tests that you face and that I face specifically for us to produce perseverance and to grow in holiness and bring us to Christian maturity. That is, make us more like Christ. God didn't redeem us to leave us the way we are. Amen? He redeemed us and promises great change beyond what he's already done in us. And friend, know this. In the midst of every trial we face, 
God never, underline never if you're taking notes, God never leaves us to struggle alone, ever. Though he may feel very distant to you right now. But he promises to give us wisdom. And he promises when we ask for wisdom that he's going to lavish it upon us. He is going to give it generously to us. Without reproach, if we ask in faith without doubting. All this tells us that the joy is not in being delivered from the trial we're in, but that there is something wonderful found within and through the trial by means of this learning to practice endurance. Right? There is something beautiful. God said, I'm going to give you joy. I'm not ripping you out of that deal yet. There are things that I need you, that you need more than you believe, to understand and know. You see, God imparts his blessings throughout our trials. And all the while, while he's just guiding us along, we may not feel it, but we have his word. We have his Holy Spirit, God himself in us, the seal and hope of glory. So he is guiding you and me towards the great ultimate blessing. Eternal life. Eternal life. This is where we see the connection to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life with which God has promised to those who love him. The opening phrase in verse 12 pronounces a blessing upon the person who is enduring, persevering in this test that God is bringing. It's not a pass or fail. It's meant to strengthen us, embolden us, encourage us, teach us. You can ask some of the professors here. John, in the Greek, means slow learner. That's a joke. But but it is true nonetheless. Let me just say that. So the opening phrase pronounces this blessing for the person who endures this test of faith. But what attracts the reward is not their endurance. So if you're struggling to persevere through something right now, it's it's the reward doesn't come because of your endurance. It says, but the love for God which you have for him prompted it. We're going to look more into that as we get near the end of our sermon. But we're talking about the crown of life here, which is, again, a symbol of this glorious gift of eternal life to those who love him. So there we see a secure promise of God to every one of his followers. They do not strive in futility with this blind hope of, oh, I hope it works out, but instead endure purposefully with the goal of everlasting life. Years ago, I used to ride a motorcycle a lot. uh, And one of the things that you learn very early on is that, uh, and maybe if you, you know, you guys already know this, so bear with me. But when you're on the road, when you're in anything, anything you look at is where you go. 
Okay, so if there's a tire in the road and you're on a motorcycle on the 10, don't look at it because you are just going to naturally go there. Ever, ever be in a country, on a country road and you're like, there's one tree for 30 miles and it's the one that has no bark on it because everybody's hitting it? Because you see the tree coming up. There's a tree. There's a tree. And you go right towards it. What is our perspective? What are we looking at in the trial? Where are we focused? On the trial? If I use that analogy about the motorcycle and the trial is the tire, and I'm staring at the tire, I've got problems ahead, don't I? It's going to hurt. Friends, that is the purpose of trials. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What's the greatest thing that's ever happened in your life? Beyond it. Beyond, no comparison, right? The greatest feeling, the greatest moment, the greatest thing you've ever heard, the greatest thing you know, it's beyond that. And God is preparing a place for you if you're a Christian, and that is encouraging. So having gained some understanding of the purpose of trials, now let's look at verses 13 and 15. Now, if you were really looking at our reading when we were going through it, you'll see that the section we're going into now is actually sandwiched by the glory of God, the beauty of God, the gift of God, the magnificence of God. And I think that's on purpose. I know it's on purpose. It's to keep our eyes not on this section that we're going into, but remember what we just heard and where we're going to that crown of life. So let's look at the problem with unchecked desires. Some of us know people who certainly have a problem with unchecked desires. Some of us sitting here, we, we wouldn't admit it, but we do. The good news is the Bible tells us more about you and tells you more about me than I would care to admit. So we can be friends, amen? All right. So let's look at verse 12, or excuse me, in verse 12, James spoke of the blessing for the person who endures the circumstantial trials that hit us from the outside. For the first section of, of James, we're seeing trials that are coming from the outside. Now James moves to the inside, in the noggin, in the heart, in our emotions. Here's the warning. Don't give in to temptation. How are these things connected? How are the outside and the inside, the trials and temptations connected? Outside trials will lead to inside temptations, right? When things at work aren't going well, when the kids aren't doing well, when your marriage isn't good, when you've been single so long, you, you, your, your heart is just struggling with these things. And it feels like this outside trial. But they tend to work their way in. And that's where we need to be careful. That's where this temptation theme this summer is coming into play. And more often than not, the same trial, listen, the same trial or test, friend, that God designs as an opportunity to go forward and actually produce steadfastness, holiness, and maturity in our lives can also become a temptation to go back to my idols, my fears, my insecurity, the things that just panic me and freak me out. And I, I can't, I can't, I can't. 
What do those temptations look like? You know, we are all tempted. And we all sin. And I don't know about you, but I am pretty good at blaming someone else for what I do. Right? When you guys are late for lunch, you'll blame me. I know. For example, I could tell my wife, I'm angry because you didn't do what I asked. I'm angry because you did that to me. I deserve better. My kingdom deserves better. And her kingdom is saying, my kingdom deserves better. And we're going at it, right? We can focus on God's kingdom together. All that garbage starts to go away. What if, what if, how many, well, I'm not going to ask you if you were late. We already know. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so if your kids, you know, if the kids are, are getting on your nerves, I'm trying to be the best mom and dad and, and the kids, kids, I love you, but you're making me crazy and the reason I'm screaming all the time isn't because I'm a screamer, it's because you. Can we get some tissues in here? I see a lot of teary eyes here. There's all kinds of things that we blame. I wouldn't have done that if you would have done this. I would have done that if you did this. Think about those things in your life. It's not an excuse standing before God. We can end up blaming God too. We can turn it on God when we're like, hey, I don't know what's going on. God's just, God's just made me do it, right? I mean, you know the story from the garden, right? It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. This goes way back to the garden. We blame God for all kinds of things. Our circumstances, our weaknesses. Why can't I figure this out quicker? We blame him for our job that we've been praying, maybe for years for something new. Maybe for a promotion. Maybe for anything. And we're stuck. God, you can do it. You're sovereign. You can do it, and you're not. I'm blaming you. What about our friends? I'm blaming you that I don't like my family. You made them really bad and lousy. I don't like them. I don't like my family, my friends. I really don't like my finances, God. You can change that, and you're not. That's on you. But James tells us in verse 13, we're forbidden. We cannot blame God. Take a look. Let no one say he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, excuse me, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, And he himself tempts no one. Hmm. Friend, God never lays out the bait to trap us or tempt us to sin. Do you believe that? God's not laying out the crumbs leading to the cliff. But he tests his followers. Why? Whatever you're going through, he tests us. It's not a pass or or fail. It's a test to reveal 
our need to be strengthened in character by God. But he never tempts. Why? Because he's supremely good. Can you guys say God is supremely good with a smile on your face and mean it? Let's try it. Ready? God is extremely good. Oh, you guys are all smiling. Well done. Since he is supremely good and perfectly holy, listen, it's impossible for God to entice a person to sin or, or, or harm their faith in any way. It's impossible. So, where do temptations originate? Man, James jumps right at it. Look at verse 14. But each person, that's me, not you, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by someone, something, no, by his own desires. I don't think that's a good law from God. I, I think God's withholding. And I think I'm going to experience more joy and more freedom when I disregard the law of liberty, that is, obeying God and being the most free in my obedience to God, and we'll stumble and fail, we'll mess that up. But I'm most free when I'm obeying God. But I don't think that, do I? I want what I want because I think I deserve it, I need it, I want And I want to be happy. The word desire here really doesn't have any moral connotation to it. It has no moral quality to it. It simply means that desires in themselves are not good or bad. God gave us desires for things like peace and happiness and love and security and marriage, food, water, sexual fulfillment in the commitment of marriage. These are all good. They are gifts from God. But we get impatient, don't we? We want to charge the door and get what we want. These desires aren't bad, but the temptation uses these God-given desires that God has put in us to get us to follow those desires in an ungodly way, crossing the line that God never meant for us to cross. Friends, that sin. Don't give in to temptation is this clarion clarion call. Now, when James uses this phrase, lured and enticed, he's using language of a fisherman. I grew up on a lake. I wouldn't call myself a fisherman, but I was able to fish whenever I wanted to. So this lured and enticed, I get it. The goal of this angler, this fisherman, is to do what? Be reeling in a fish. He wants to hook, she wants to hook a fish. But he knows no fish is going to bite this metal hook, so he baits the hook with something that he believes the fish wants. The fisherman isn't motivated by a desire to feed the fish, is he? He wants to eat the fish. So he's going to dangle out the right bait to catch the type of fish that he wants to. 
The food or the lure is just there to hook the fish's desires so that the fish bites to what? His own destruction. Right? Beloved, temptation is never about us, about giving us what we want or need. It's not about giving us what we want or need. It's always about the dangly pretty thing or whatever that we think we want or need so that we bite. And we bite to our own destruction. That's temptation. Don't give in to temptation. The hook is always baited with something that you desire, that I desire. Something that promises to make our lives better, more enjoyable, or will dull the pain physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it might be, and make whatever trial I'm in easier to bear. Man, I had a rough day at the office. I went home and pounded a few brews. Why? I pounded the few brews because I wanted, to, I wanted a break mentally from what I dealt with at the office. Friends, beloved, we need to bring everything in our minds into captivity to the obedience of Christ. An unprotected, uncontrolled, unyielding mind is going to be filled with ungodly images that begin to control our emotions and our feelings. They begin to wrap themselves around us We have to control our mind. The battle, Christian, is for your mind. Why do you think the world is so fast right now? Why do you think it's so easy to be constantly tempted to look at your phone, to be distracted, to have to go in la-la land and binge watch whatever? That's where things get started in our mind. And we need to control our thoughts. We need to bring them into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Casting down arguments and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Hey, that's exalting itself against the knowledge of God. I need to cast that down. I need to burn that down. That thought that came into my heart, into my mind, excuse me, I've got to burn it down. We need the mind of Christ. We cannot expose our mind and emotions continually to things which lure us away from the things of God. And God's, the Holy Spirit and your conscience working in some tandem has warned us about things and we've pressed through it and we don't feel the warning anymore. What is God warning you about? Where are you struggling? We need the mind of Christ. We need a renewed mind, don't we? We need a mind that is set on the things above and not on the things on the earth. Man, that's a quick trigger, right? What am I thinking about? Things of the earth. I'm worried. I'm fear. I want this. I desire that. 
We need a mind that is saturated in the word of Christ, dwelling in it richly. And that's why it's so hard for us as human beings to take the time to sit under the word and let it have its way with us. You see, friends, the desire hooks our hearts and drags us in a very dangerous and destructive direction. How dangerous and destructive? Verse 15 describes the treacherous fatal path. Look, verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation uses our own desires to kill us. Sin is a killer, according to Scripture. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual death. A separating the soul from God. Physical death, separating the soul from the body. Eternal death, separating the soul and body from God. And he's not, excuse me, and he's not here particularly talking about Christians or non-Christians. He's just saying all sin always produces death and can even be for the believer, according to 1 Corinthians 11. All kinds of death flow out of sin. So the idea that we are bringing some satisfying behavior to life is a lie. This is the problem with our unchecked desires. James tells us in verse 16, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. We are. James is telling us to know where the trouble is. Don't be deceived. Stop blaming God and start understanding it's your blame. It's your responsibility. Is this feeling heavy? There's relief coming. You cannot expose your heart to everything that lures you. You can't let your mind be captive. Recognize the hook. The word of God starts to make the hook and the bait clearer to you in your life. Titus 2.12 reminds us that the grace of God teaches us to say no. No and to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Remember our main idea. Temptations are all around us, but when we keep the goodness of God and his promises in focus, we will avoid disaster and deepen our faith. Friends, just as we need to be steadfast in the midst of trials, the things happening to us on the outside, we need to be steadfast with what's going on in our noggin, in our hearts, in our minds, and not let these desires go unchecked. What might that look like? Well, um, you walk into a group of friends and they're gossiping, right? And you've been a part of that, so they feel very free about gossiping, and you've gossiped. And you walk in and you're gossiping. They're gossiping, and you go, you're, man, you're, the Holy Spirit, you've been in the Word, man, you're realizing, man, what I'm doing is not right. And you say, friends, I, man, man, guys, I just want to say, we need to be really careful here. Why is that scary? Because in the midst of that test, when the temptation's there, I have an opportunity to go either towards God or bail out because of the pressure. Now, if my friends have a great influence on me, I probably won't tell them that they're gossips. But in fear, I might go, you know what? I forgot. I got to go to a lie. To- I got an appointment. I, you know, guys, I got to go. Because if you tell them that you think they're gossiping, guess what? When you leave the room, what are they going to do? They're going to burn you down and have you for lunch, right? That's how it works. 
so I'm afraid to do what is right. That's just a simple, I don't know if that's helpful. Understanding trials and temptations, we need to ask, so how in the world do we do all this? <laughs> how do we do this? Friends, we need to long for the, go- the good and the perfect. Long for the good and the perfect. Trials are heavy. Trials are difficult. Temptation is dangerous. Verse 17, James moves from evil temptations, which God never gives, to the wonderfully good nature of God. This is what we want to see. Every good, every good, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Friends, this is the heart of the text, I believe. Please grasp this. Please think this through. No one can blame God for sin because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Let me continue. We possess a nature that gives rise to sin. It just is true. God does not. The nature of God is such that it only produces good and what else? Good and what else? Good and what else? More good. That's what God does. He is good and he produces good. His intentions for you, Christian, take the you out and put your name in there. His intentions for you, John, are good. The struggle is real. Yeah, I get it. But my intentions for you, God says, are good. You see, God has what we most desperately need. Temptation makes us think, "Ah, ah, being steadfast is hard. I feel pressure to stand and stay, and it hurts. And I don't like this feeling, so I want release. And I hit the switch, whatever it is, and I back up. But when we know that God brings about these tests, these trials, because we deeply need to know him, and that he alone can satisfy the longing that we have, our deepest desires. It's not the bait on the hook, but the good and perfect gift given by Creator God. And that's what our phrase here, coming down from the Father of lights, is showing us. That is a great statement. The Father of lights The Father of Lights was an ancient Jewish way of referring to God as creator. The lights that they have in mind are the sun, the moon, the stars, the celestial bodies throughout the sky. You might be asking, why is James choosing this title for God? It's because it fits his illustration. God is the Father of Lights, but with him... We sang about it. There is what? No variation and no shifting shadow. This should be very encouraging to us. We have a good God who never changes. He's always good. I don't feel like he's good. This is hard. The trial is hard. Sin has entered the world. But God is good. You see, God is the one who created the stellar universe, the the stellar bodies. But he's not like them. He's not like the stars. He's not like the moon. He's not like the sun. You see, they vary, don't they? They change. 
They dim, they brighten, they bring light, they cast shadows. They are visible in the daytime and not so much at night, or they're visible at night and not during the daytime. Their benefit to us can come and it can go. God is not like that. Your God, Christian, is not like that. God's brilliant, bright light of glory, the light of goodness, and the light of grace is not a thing that varies. He does not pass from one condition to the next. Oh, he's going to be mad at me. He's angry. He's going to stumble me here. He doesn't have a shadow. He never lurks in the dark. 1 John 1.5 tells us God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I pray that you're applying this to your situation. But he's good. I need to focus on him. I need to gaze upon him. I need to keep my eyes upon this one that is good. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Man, we can flip around in our mind thinking he does. Beloved, this is boldly, loudly proclaiming that there are no days, no days, when God stops giving out good and perfect gifts, both spiritual and temporal. There are no days when he, excuse me, we don't give into temptation when we are gloriously fed the good gifts. The more we fall in love with God and see his bounty of goodness, and his care and his kindness and his love for us, man, I don't need to look at anything else. Man, a well-fed fish isn't looking for bait. You get that? A fish that's full all the time is not looking for bait. He is not going to be easily lured and enticed. So if you're enjoying, if you're cashing in on the divine resources of God, why in the world would you go after another piece of bait? Why would you go for any of it, right? We need to long for and fill up on divine gifts. Malachi and I did not talk about the music selections. Malachi's very gifted. Uh, He tells me that all the time. I appreciate it. Um, (laughs) It reminds me, hey, P.S., I'm gifted. Yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. He, he never does that. Malachi's, man, if he didn't love me, I couldn't have said that. I've got to admit, there's a little fear and trepidation in me now. But let me read these words to you that we sang this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing. Come now lures with all kinds of stinky bait. No. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Don't they? The streams of mercy never cease from God. Nothing can eclipse the goodness of God. Nothing can stop his generosity. Nothing can interrupt the flow of his heavenly light to us. Friend, don't take the devil's bait. Don't conceive and give birth to a deadly sin. See, that's how it works. 
The temptation's there. The test is going on. Here comes the temptation. What am I going to do? Am I going to back off, take the bait and back off, or am I going to press in and trust God? I'm going to apply Scripture. I'm going to do what I need to do. If we back off, what happens is we begin to conceive, and when that sin is conceived, right? You get the idea of a birth, a baby coming, right? The idea of this, this, this sin is like a baby. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, just understand that this sin is conceived and it starts to grow, right? And then you've got this sin that's got all this ability and control and it spells out your death. Who's responsible for that? I am. You are. But there is real hope. The proof is found in verse 18. I think that that beep was just letting you know we're halfway through. (laughs) I could use some talcum powder up here too, by the way. Should be preaching on hell right now. No. The proof is found in verse 18. Here's the hope. Listen. Here's the proof. And the nature, it's in the nature of regeneration of God taking this sinful, stony heart, which has no desire for God, and and giving me, pulling that out, and giving me a heart of flesh. Redeeming me. Regenerating me. I'm a new creation in Christ. God lives in me. Look at verse 18. Of his own will. I didn't do it. I'm over here being enticed by all kinds of nonsense. Grabbing lures. Of his own will, he brought us forth by what? The word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Get this. God could never tempt us to sin. This is telling us why. God doesn't want us to sin because God regenerated us to make us what? Not a better sinner. Not a more careful sinner. To make us more like him. So he's not going to cause you to sin. He's not going to tempt you, friend. Are you good with that? Am I yelling at you? I'm sorry. God doesn't want us to sin because he wants us to be like himself. God's nature and the nature of regeneration means God would never lead us in that direction of sin. He gave us new life. Sin causes death. God gives life. Sin causes death. God gives life. Sin causes death. God doesn't tempt us to do evil. He recreates us that we would be seeking to do good. That is what 18 is telling us. This speaks of God's redemption, salvation of sinners. And the us is every believer, every redeemed person. And they are brought forth. This is, again, a metaphor of a new birth being brought forth by the glorious gospel, the word of truth. Friends, in closing, let's just quickly visit verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you see that? That's the focus. I'm focusing on God and what he's done and what he's doing, what he's planning to do. All the future grace. I'm applying the gospel and its implications daily in my life. And I'm looking at 
inner relationships and I'm applying the gospel, I'm living out the gospel, I'm recognizing that I'm so sinful and flawed, I know how twisted I am, yes, you've offended me and hurt me, but you know what? I can love you because God has loved me and I know I'm the wickedest sinner I know. What does this last phrase in verse 12 tell us? To whom does promise, does he promise the crown of life? To those who love him. How's that going? A lot of pressure. Man, how's that? Woo! I mean, I got me. I'm loving myself pretty good. Why do we love him? Why do you and I love him? I'll tell you why. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. That's how you know you love him. He first loved you. He redeemed you. And now you love him. How did he love us? 1 John 4.10 tells us, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you catch that? This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And the more we recognize our own depravity and see this great gift and love and crown of life promised, man, the more I want to love him, the more I want to serve him, the more I see how lovable he is. So friends, in closing, why in the world do we go after baited hooks to be satisfied when God pours out everything good, every good thing we need to truly satisfy us? Temptations are all around us. But when we keep the goodness of God and his promises in focus, we will avoid disaster and deepen our faith because he is always pouring out his goodness, even amidst our struggles. Let's pray, friends.